0: Greetings, my name is Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. A few weeks ago, on episode 34, we had my office mate Pushkar Kaparla on the show, telling us about what polarize the hole plating means in Star Trek, and how he uses the polarization of light to characterize the atmospheres of other planets. Pushkar has now left the United States. He's on a fellowship to join the Akatsuki mission, Japan's Venus Climate Orbiter. To fill the void that Pushkar left behind, I have a new office mate, Harriet Bredel, And today, it's my pleasure to introduce you to her. Harriet has taken a rather unique path to finding herself in graduate school for planetary science. Because she realized that she wanted to make space exploration her career after volunteering with the Planetary Society, an organization with Star Trek connections that she'll speak about much more, she maintains that passion and enthusiasm for science outreach and education, sharing the wonders of the universe with everyone. So, without further ado, let's meet Harriet Brettel. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Today, I am very excited to introduce you to Harriet Brettel, who is a first year graduate student at Caltech studying planetary science.
1: Uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I never, you never know what to say when can you, like, you're you saying hello to people who aren't there. Right? Yeah. It's kind
0: of like a... You have to use your imagination. That's I, true. I wonder who's listening. Who knows? It could be our advisors. That would be kind of scary.
1: Yeah. Have you have you ever tried to, like, figure out if, like, Caltech professors are listening into your podcast?
0: I can see sometimes who people are if they have SoundCloud accounts. Okay. So I can see which SoundCloud users are listening in. Uh-huh. But other than that, I don't really know too much about the people. Oh, except for their, like, um, their locations. It'll say uh-huh. if people are listening in the USA or in... UK or
1: where's the most exotic location you've got like pinpointed a listener from where you think huh how did someone from Barbados say find this podcast that's fantastic
0: there are some pretty crazy places we are quite international maybe it's time to give a shout out to all of our international listeners so I can pull up my stats right now (laughs) and let's see let's see um over the past 12 months well number one of course is the United States the UK is um, about a, a fifth of the listenership
1: oh that's also
0: yeah and then of course Canada Germany Australia uh-huh. will round out the top five let's nice. let's let's go down Oh Estonia of course I went to Estonia for a conference and met some people there and uh-huh. so that's not a big surprise to me although Estonia is a very small country but hello to all of our Estonian <laughs> listeners hmm what's way down at the bottom Albania hmm I'm embarrassed to say that. If you gave me a map of the world, I probably could not point to where Albania is.
1: Yeah, I think within, like, 500 miles, maybe. That's Mm -hmm. probably
0: ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) We've got some listeners from Croatia, from Colombia, Paraguay, Trinidad, and Tobago. That's so cool. Serbia, Bulgaria, Finland, and Indonesia. Wow. That's really cool. Okay, I'm excited. Well, thank you for listening from wherever you are. Absolutely. (laughs) So, Harriet... Where are you from? Tell me how you got here, because I know you have uh-huh. a very interesting story finding your way into planetary science.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder if like, listeners can tell where I'm from, because I, I keep getting accused of being Australian, which is not a bad thing. Um, every now and then, people tell me I sound American, and I'm like, oh, I've got to go back home <laughs> and fix my accent as quickly as possible. Um, but I'm from the UK, so I studied math in undergrad, or maths depending on, see, That's right. that it's come maths. out already, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was a good few years ago now. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated, and I ended up working in finance. So I worked in London for a few years, and then New York, and then back to London. Realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I'd always been interested in space and astronomy, but considered it more as a hobby rather than a full-time career. And then I got to this point where I thought, okay, if if I'm not gonna do finance forever and I wanna find something different, why don't I go back to that subject that I've always been passionate about and went back to school, did a part-time master's in astrophysics, absolutely loved it, it kind of reignited that passion that I had and really opened my eyes up to the fact that this was something I could do as a career and I didn't need to be an engineer or a astronaut to be involved in the space community There's loads of other different things you can do, and I think at that point, that was when I was like, okay, I need to kind of go and do this full-time, and studying for a PhD in planetary science seemed like a good way to do that. So I applied to schools in the US, mainly because of the way the PhD programs are funded and structured. Over here, you get a lot more flexibility in terms of what you can study. In the UK, you tend to be sent on a very narrow track very early on, and I still was kind of exploring what things in planetary science I was interested in. So it's been nice to have that flexibility and figure it out as I go along, which has been great fun.
0: Excellent. Since I'm a uh, 6 year grad student, I've seen how and where other grad students over the past six years from Caltech have taken their careers. and. A lot of people stay in academia and uh, are continuing to do science to this day. But several of them go to finance and go to other sectors of industry and Mm -hmm. that's totally fine too. But it's not very common to see that switch from academia to finance go the other way around, where you get somebody who's, Mm -hmm. I guess, making a lot more money than a scientist would, and then deciding, you know what, I'm going to do (laughs) science because it's so much interesting. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But um, it's really heartwarming to hear that story and to know that it does go the other way around every once in a while. It
1: it definitely does, and. When I was looking at trying to apply to grad school, this was a big thing and it was more like a self-confidence, you know, like, oh God, what am I doing? I've I've got this career kind of mapped out and it seems kind of crazy to go back to grad school and I wasn't sure if it was something I was even qualified to do. Um, so I started looking for other grad students who had similar paths or had done something slightly different before going into grad school. And I found a couple and it was really encouraging. You know, I talked to a guy, um, he was a grad student at Columbia, and he'd worked in finance and consulting for I think like eight years before going and doing an astronomy PhD. And just learning about different routes people have taken, it kind of makes you think, yeah, you know, like this is something I can do. So yeah, that's, that's how it kind of panned out.
0: So how does Star Trek enter into your own personal narrative?
1: How does it... Oh, that's a great question. My dad would be, like, so ashamed of me because he used to... Well, my dad is a huge Star Trek fan, okay? And when me and my sister were younger, he would, like, put it on TV all the time and and try and make us watch it. And, like, when you're, like, 10 years old, I think me and my sister were like, oh, it's not cool. Or, like, I don't know, we had different interests or something. So it's something that's always been there in like, the back of my... Existence, I guess, you know, like my dad will always tell like stories about like Star Trek or we'll be walking down the street and every like other analogy he makes will be like, Oh, you know, this thing happened in Star Trek or like, (laughs) Oh, there's this thing that relates to Star Trek. So it's something I've kind of always had a fondness for, but haven't been as much of a dedicated fan as I feel like I should have been. That's something that I can still change. Right. There's still time.
0: There's still time. Uh I, I feel like I really want to meet your dad now. (laughs) <laughs> he was just in town last week. Oh, I know, <laughs> just missed him. Uh, but, <laughs> next time, next time.
1: Yeah, but I mean, he—he, he, we watched like the old like Star Trek movies together. So, oh, which one is it where they like start in San Francisco and they have the um, the Vija message yeah, comes that's, through? that's the
0: very first Star Trek movie. Okay, yeah, that
1: was super good. Like, I loved <laughs> the twist at the end. It made me so happy. Okay, you know, just, like, yeah, that was really cool. So I don't want to spoil it for people who maybe haven't.
0: No, like, you should feel free to spoil whatever you want.
1: Oh, okay, fair enough. Fine. Well, yeah. If if you haven't watched it already, it's been out for like thirty years, right? So maybe yeah, no, exactly. no excuse. <laughs> but yeah, so they get a. From what I remember, and you can kind of fill in any details I miss mm-hmm. out. They have this message that comes from outer space from this alien civilization or whatever it is called Vija, and they're trying to figure out where it's come from and they go through all these wonderful adventures and it turns out that this is the Voyager probe that was launched in the 1970s has left the solar system has been traveling for like 300 years or however long it's been and then this I think it's an alien civilization picks it up And tries to send it home, essentially, back to the Earth. Mm -hmm. And it's this wonderful story. Like, I can just imagine Carl Sagan, like, dreaming of this kind of future, you know, where, like, you send these spacecrafts out into the cosmos and then someone turns it around and throws it back. Like, that would be so awesome if that was true. Yeah. yeah.
0: Thanks for bringing up Star Trek The Motion Picture, Mm -hmm. the very first Star Trek movie. I feel like, honestly, that one is not as. Highly regarded as a motion picture, as some of the other Star Trek movies. Okay. So I hope you have a chance to see the subsequent films.
1: Maybe it just gets better from there, right? And I can enjoy it more and more. It, it,
0: it gets better, and then it gets worse, and then it gets better again. <laughs> <laughs> it's a roller coaster, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Well, when you've got a franchise that's been going on for so long, mm-hmm. like, I guess it's hard to keep the momentum, and like, the themes have changed over the course of the different series, and like, I guess it's a completely new entity now compared to what it used to be and that can be a good thing and a bad thing and change is always change, right?
0: Right. Star Trek is always evolving and Mm -hmm. that's one of the beautiful things about it. And human culture is also always evolving Mm -hmm. and you gave a really interesting talk a couple months ago at what's called Astro on Tap. Yes. So I encourage listeners to go and find their nearest Astro on Tap event. It's always a blast it's basically an astronomy talk or a few astronomy talks held at a bar somewhere Mm -hmm. and so it's beer and space and lots of fun what more could you want
1: from a monday (laughs) night or whatever night it's hosted in your city right yeah it's good fun
0: (laughs) so caltech hosts astro on taps what is it once a month
1: once a month in a pub in Old town pasadena and yeah it's fantastic so they get usually two speakers each month So uh, a few months ago I did a talk about whether science fiction can predict the future.
0: Yeah. which, Which
1: was, it's one of my like pet hobby subjects, you know. I love finding examples of science fiction that has either predicted the future in a weird and wonderful way where you think, how did they see that coming, it's incredible or where they've got it completely wrong and it just makes you kind of feel warm and fuzzy inside, you know, in a way that's like, oh, they were so ambitious and optimistic and look, here we are with our like, no greater than light speed travel and we still can't teleport and all these things, but yeah, it's good fun.
0: So in what ways has science fiction predicted the future?
1: Yeah, there's a few great examples that I mentioned in the talk a few months ago, at Astron Tap, one of which is uh, the story that was written by jules verne in the late 1800s i think it was 1865 right Uh, and it's a story called from the earth to the moon and it tells the tale of essentially the first human mission to the moon and it was written over 100 years before the apollo missions and it gets some of the details bang on in a kind of eerie way right so the He predicts that there will—he predicts—he writes that the launch will take place in Florida. Mm. That there'll be three astronauts that will go on this mission to the moon. He predicts the weight of the rocket and the cost of the rocket within an order of magnitude of what the actual Apollo missions cost, which is kind of crazy. And the nice thing about this story is he doesn't just pull these things from thin air. It's not like he was just like, oh, you know, uh, let's go with Florida. That sounds cool. He spends a whole chapter of the book talking about why Florida or Texas would be the best places to strategically launch from the U.S. if you wanted to get to the moon. So he's really kind of thought through these predictions to try and make it as realistic as possible. And the foresight is just incredible. I mean, he was writing this before there were planes in the sky, and he's envisioning these rockets going to the moon, which is pretty awesome, right?
0: Yeah. So. Wow. Okay.
1: Uh-huh. So that's one where you think, okay, this guy has really thought through this prediction and I'm really happy it worked out. And there's a few others where it's a little bit more, this is a wonderful coincidence, but it's still an awesome coincidence. So another example is uh, Wernher von Braun, who was one of the kind of NASA rocketry pioneers in the beginnings of the space race. Big player in the building of the Saturn V, et etc. Et he also was a huge advocate for humans going to Mars. And he did a lot of technical writing about how we would actually do that in reality. But he also wrote a science fiction story, which was called Project Mars, I think. And in this story, there's some really nice little anecdotes in there, like uh, the world has finally found peace. We have a united states of Earth or something like that. You know, everyone's come together. There's no more Cold War. There's an artificial moon called the Lunetta, which floats around, orbits the Earth, exactly the same way that the International Space Station does today. So that's a cool kind of prediction that came Mm -hmm. true. And we discover that there's a civilization of humans living on Mars. And he kind of wrote this in the time where maybe, you know, the canal theory of like looking at Mars and seeing these kind of tracks in the ground and thinking, oh, okay, maybe... Maybe these are artificial, maybe someone built these, okay. And so the story tells a tale of the first humans exploring, well, heading to Mars, and meeting with the Martian leaders and the people who are living on Mars. And he describes, amongst other things, the Martian government. And he comes up with a name for what he thinks the the leader of the Martian government will be. And he calls him Elon, which
0: is just (laughs) like...
1: (laughs) <laughs> it's like the best thing. And this was written in 1948. And he predicted that the leader of the Martian government would be called Elon. And you just think, like, that's that's just so wonderful. How could... Uh, obviously, it's just nothing more than a coincidence, right? Or is it?
0: I don't know. I don't maybe know. Maybe Elon Musk read this story and was like, well, my name is Elon, so therefore I am destined to be the leader of the Martian government.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You never know. <laughs> or maybe someone in the future read this story, traveled back in time, you know, like there's a whole kind of convoluted... Uh, the story there, I don't know. But that, that just kind of really made me smile when I saw that and I was like, that can't be true, no way. <laughs> and then I read the book, I read the page and I was like, oh, this is amazing, this yeah. is wonderful. So yeah, there's, there's a whole host of like wonderful sci-fi predictions like that or just kind of technology that we see kind of today, you know, there's plenty of examples of sci-fi stories that have predicted things that look like the internet or look like computers which is pretty cool, including from Star Trek as well, right?
0: So has Star Trek been successful at predicting the future?
1: Definitely. I actually wrote down a few examples because I wanted to make sure that I got these right. But there are definitely a few things that are like definitively you can see these in Star Trek before they happened in real life. One which I think is really fun is automatic doors. So, you know, when you look at the on the Star Trek... uh, Spaceships, or whatever—they walk through automatic doors, which you, you don't think of as special any like right. these days, yeah, right? I do that all the time. Exactly, but these weren't invented when Star Trek put them in the show. And they actually had to have people pulling open the doors manually mm-hmm. on set to make it look like they were automatic before we actually had that technology, which yeah. is kind of like a fun idea. I've right? seen so
0: many funny Star Trek bloopers where the person pulling the door doesn't do it in time. Oh, that's
1: <is> so funny. <laughs> exactly. Like, that's a great one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, like cell phones? You you see kind of what looks like an old school like flip phone being used in Star Trek, you know, to communicate between like whatever planet they're roaming around on and back up of the spaceship, which is pretty cool. Bluetooth headsets, that's something which is kind of you see in Star Trek and then it's like oh okay now these well I guess Bluetooth headsets have kind of had their day right maybe people don't use them so much anymore but it predicted the future and then it tailed off maybe it will make a comeback in like the 23rd century who knows and then other things like you know universal translators you see this in Star Trek or Doctor Who a lot of kind of science fiction stories have some sort of technology which means you can talk with alien Mm -hmm. civilizations which I think is kind of like one of those get out clauses because if you did have that technology then you'd have to spend like half the TV show figuring out the language and right. like playing catch-up before you can actually have any like drama
0: you know? did you see that movie arrival
1: yes which essentially yeah. is what happens there right they take right. a long it takes a long time to figure out the language mm-hmm. and like that was a really cool movie actually I really liked the way that the language was or the communication was so different to anything we see here yeah and that's one of the things that's it, It's hard with science fiction because you're trying to imagine something that is so different to anything you've ever seen before. And that's really hard to do. Like one of the things I've found with science fiction is often it reflects the era in which it's written more than it does like the actual future. So people are usually talking about a future that they want to see happening or they think is gonna happen because of like the current state of play. There's a lot of like 70s and 80s sci-fi which is post-apocalyptic like post-nuclear war kind of future because that's the era in which they were living when they wrote the stories and then like early 2000s you get more like sci-fi which is exploring like implications of like genetics and how humanity itself might change so it's interesting to see those different trends right which is cool
0: well i won't say that star trek is not Reflected or influenced by the way that the world was at the time or the way that America specifically was because that's where Star Trek was being produced. Mm-hmm. It certainly was influenced by our culture. But I think Star Trek might be a little bit different from other science fiction media in that it tries to also say what we hope the world would look like in the future. So for instance, Star Trek was being made during the Cold War also, but featured a person of Russian descent, Chekhov, on the bridge uh-huh. of a starship which represented a very unified Earth. Uh-huh. And, um, and I, I thought that was a really nice touch to say that, look, we envision a future in which we are not fragmented on a political map.
1: Yeah, I I remember watching a Star Trek episode, and you're completely right, like Star Trek challenges issues in society as much as it kind of just like puts them out there, right? And I remember watching a really good episode, I'm not going to be able to remember its name, but it was, they they go to a planet and there's this huge war going on on the planet, right? Half the people are black on one side of their face and white on the other, and the other half who they're like deadly enemies with are like the reverse, Mm -hmm. right? and these people absolutely hate each other and want to like destroy the other you know and the star trek crew come down to this planet and they're like what are you guys doing this makes no sense like you guys are just slightly different and yet that's the only reason you hate each other and it's cool because they mean this kind of like it's somewhat obviously of like a metaphor for kind of i guess uh, racism and other kind of discrimination which is kind of surface level only and it's ultimately, like, completely meaningless, right? Mm-hmm. But they make a wonderful reference in the Star Trek episode where they're talking about this planet and one of the characters, it might be Spock or something, he says, like, oh, yes, like, this planet really reminds me of, like, the ancient 1900s whatever, you know? And he refers to, like, the modern day, uh, well, modern day in the era in which it's being watched as, yes. like, an example of, like, a ridiculous discrimination or like division which is kind of neat you know it's it's cool to have that commentary
0: absolutely sometimes star trek is subtle and sometimes it is most unsubtle (laughs) (laughs) yes
1: that's true that's true
0: do you have any examples that you want to share of things that star trek wasn't able to predict
1: oh that's on the other side of my post-it note (laughs) well obviously there's some things that star trek like people can do in the universe of star trek which we cannot do right now personally i'm really disappointed that we don't have teleportation i Me think that, i think that would be wonderful
0: yeah then i wouldn't have to wake up so early to get to class on time you know uh-huh. yeah you would
1: just like flick a switch and then you'd be there yeah i do wonder like how society would change if you genuinely could flip between place to place with like basically no consequence be quite interesting
0: it would we also had a philosophical debate on this podcast a while back about whether or not you die when you go through a transporter
1: oh i love this question yes because essentially like especially if you've got a teleportation device which is essentially just taking a record of your genetic makeup or molecular makeup burns you to a crisp and then rebuilds you with new atoms mm-hmm. right are you the same
0: what what was your answer? I think you do die, <gasps> and then a Ooh. new you is created.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> it's a tricky one. I think I'd probably say, well, I don't know, because then you get the issue of, well, what happens if you don't burn the original? Mm-hmm. What if you've got two, you know? What right. if you just take a copy and you clone it, and then you're rebuilt? Like, does that mean there's now two of you, or are those two people different? I think you're probably the same at like t zero, and then as soon as you start moving forward in time, you get stochastic changes, and, right. and quantum mechanics kind of kicks in, and like free will, I guess, right. those two people are instantaneously start becoming different.
0: Sort of like identical twins are identical, and yeah, genetically genetic. identical,
1: yeah. right? At uh-huh. the beginning,
0: but then their life experiences mm-hmm. differ the moment they come out of the womb because right. you know. Different timing, and then uh-huh. they go to different schools maybe, and mm-hmm. then meet different people. And then, you know, by the time they're 40, 50 years old, they're completely different. Right. Uh-huh. Well, not or completely. More different but, than More than different. They were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah.
1: So, yeah, what were we talking about? Uh, science. Oh, yeah, things that Star Trek hasn't been able to predict successfully. We don't have warp speed.
0: That's sad. That is really sad because yeah. all of these exoplanets that we're discovering right now. I know. They're so far away and they're so dim. I just wish we could get closer.
1: I know. I know. It, it is a real challenge. If you think about wanting humanity to become a multi-planetary species, at the moment we are severely constrained to our own solar system. And that is such a small fraction of like everything that's out there. And it would be really nice if you could kind of, I don't know, crack that problem. But I guess that's a tricky one to solve huh?
0: Well, I hear that there is an organization that is trying to reach... Great (laughs) (laughs) segue, Mike. Well, yes. So there's this uh, thing called the Planetary Society, which is based in Pasadena. Uh Uh-huh, yep. And I know that you're heavily involved with Uh the Planetary Society. So I was wondering if you could give us a, a brief history of how the Planetary Society was formed, what it is and how people can get involved themselves and what you do with the Planetary Society.
1: And how it relates to warp speed as well, I guess. So I guess this comes down to, just as a spoiler, the Planetary Society is not gonna be solving uh, warp speed anytime soon. But in terms of developing prototypes for interstellar travel, that is something that the Planetary Society is doing, which is really exciting. And I will talk about that after I've introduced what they actually do. So the Planetary Society was founded in 1980 by Carl Sagan hero of them all. And the, the idea behind it was to have a, an organization that was uh, passionate about space exploration that demonstrates by its mere existence that the public is really excited by space and space exploration and that this is something that we should be continuing to do. And so the Planetary Society was founded in 1980. It's been growing ever since. We have, I think, almost, uh, 40,000 members or something like that, all over the world, so kind of supported by this, or inspired by this mission to develop and advance human exploration throughout the cosmos. Which is a very kind of grand and wonderfully idealized goal, but it's fantastic, mm-hmm. right, it's, it's so inspiring to see. Uh, so many people interested about and passionate about making space exploration something that anyone and everyone can get involved in. And that's one of the really big things that the Planetary Society does. We try to educate people of all knowledge levels from like tiniest kids in kindergarten up to kind of adults of or scientific experts understanding what's going on what the latest news is in terms of what's NASA doing what are the big projects that are going on uh, what's the latest research saying so we do kind of education across the board which is super cool we also advocate for kind of more NASA funding and support to try and make these projects happen more in the future which is kind of increasingly necessary right and it's really important to be able to explain why this stuff is important to not only people who uh, are in power but also citizens who have the power to vote to who makes those decisions right and then the final side is we do our own space projects which is where the interstellar travel comes in yeah so the planetary society is launching its light sail mission later this year on the next falcon heavy which is going to be awesome yeah And so this is a small cubesat and essentially how it works is it unfurls in space into a giant solar sail. And so I think it's about 30 meters squared. It's about the size of a boxing ring. And it will use light and the energy that is provided by uh, photons momentum to fly around the earth in an orbit exactly the same way that like a sailing boat does, but instead of using wind, you're using the sunlight to kind of power you around. And the idea for this is to be a proof of concept to show that this technology can work. Uh, and going forward, the idea is to be able to use this technology to travel to other star systems. One of the huge advantages of using a solar sail or solar sail technology is that you can accelerate up to super fast speeds at a very constant rate and as long as you've got the sun's light or like a laser focused at that sail you can keep accelerating pretty much well indefinitely until you get up to the speed of light right which means that theoretically you could get to our nearest neighbor star alpha centauri in four or five years which is really cool. You that's know? amazing. So... Yeah, that's
0: actually pretty fast. I know for people who are used to having their morning commute be maybe an hour or so, four or five years, seems like a long commute to the nearest star, uh-huh. but that's actually about as fast as you could get there because it's four light years away.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, so in reality, if you wanted to kind of accelerate up to uh, maybe like half the speed of light and then you want to decelerate, right, because you actually want to see the place when you get there, you're probably talking like more like 10 years. But this is something that an organization called Breakthrough Starshot is trying to make a reality. So this is, a, again, a nonprofit that's founded by a Russian billionaire called Yuri Milner, And they're trying to put in some of the groundwork to make this a reality in terms of being able to send small spacecrafts to other star systems, which is very exciting.
0: Yeah. You, You know, the light sail project reminds me that there was a light sail in one Star Trek episode. And I haven't seen this one in ages, so uh-huh. I'm not going to remember its name. But it was an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh-huh. And I believe, I'm trying to remember exactly what the premise was, but I know that there was a solar sail, a human crewed solar sail starship.
1: Nice. Uh,
0: and it was Captain Cisco and his son, I believe. They were trying to get away from, from, from work uh-huh. and... Do you know how like people these days, you know, I'm, I'm gonna get away from work, I'm gonna turn off my devices, I'm gonna go into the mountains, I'm gonna go to a lake and I'm uh-huh. gonna go sailing? Yeah, you know, it was kind of like that for them, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna get off the space station, I'm gonna just go on in this ancient solar sail mm-hmm. craft, and yeah. we're gonna go solar sailing together. All right, son, okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful,
1: that's great. Yeah. yeah, well, maybe we'll have that in the future one day, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Yeah. So what do you do for the Planetary Society?
1: Yeah, so I volunteer with the um, outreach group that is based in Pasadena. When I was back in the UK, I was one of the outreach coordinators. So we would try and organize events, We would have a monthly newsletter where we'd let people know about all the space related things that are going on, like in and around London. And when I knew I was moving to California, I was like, okay, fantastic. I'm going to be in Pasadena, I'm going to be by headquarters, this is going to be awesome. And it is. So we do things like uh, going to schools, talking to kids about space exploration. One of the things that goes down really well is we have this stand where we make space buttons, Mm. which is like exactly what it says on the tin. You have like all these different. Different like space-related magazines get kids to pick out their favorite space picture that you they can turn into a button. And as you're making the button, you can talk to them about like what image it is that they've selected, and be like, "Oh, you know, this is a galaxy. Do you know how galaxies form? You know, we're in a galaxy." And you can kind of, without them even noticing, share all this really cool space knowledge mm-hmm. with them. And like kids really respond to that; they get so excited about space, which I find like you know, it reflects back on you and then you feel even more
0: excited about it.
1: And then it it reminds you of why you're passionate about the subject
0: in the first place, which is really cool. That's amazing. I love that outreach idea. Okay, why don't you tell our listeners how they can join the Planetary Society and what they get for joining the Planetary Society. Great idea. I'm sure you've convinced so many people that it's a great idea to do. Yes, it's
1: great fun. I mean, so one of the things that is fantastic about the Planetary Society is there's so many free resources available on the website. So we have a blog, which has got posts pretty much every day sharing really cool latest news about anything and everything that's happening in space, from rundowns of the latest space conferences or commentary on the latest NASA budget, etc., etc. So there's loads and loads of information there. And if people wanna become members, they can do that through the website as well. I think it's just www.planetary.org. And uh, when you become a member, you get a Planetary Society t-shirt, which is really cool. So I'd recommend signing up just for the t-shirt because that's like a great reason, right? And the other way of getting involved is through volunteering. So the Planetary Society has outreach groups stationed all around the world. And that's really how I got involved. I was living in New York, discovered the Planetary Society, started volunteering in New York, was moving back to London, wanted to stay involved. There wasn't an outreach group there. So I set one up and we started doing things in London. And then I moved to California and there's an outreach group here. And we've got outreach groups in across Europe and America and Australia and all over the world, really. And it's just a fantastic network of being able to find, one, people who are passionate about space exploration, which is brilliant. And two, finding about, out about different events that are going on which is always good.
0: I remember the last time I was at a Star Trek convention, Uh there was a Planetary Society booth. And so yes. if, if if you're a Trekkie who is going to the conventions this summer, um, uh-huh. try to drop by the Planetary Society booth and talk where, to them about space.
1: Where does the Star Trek convention happen? Uh, the
0: biggest one in the United States happens more in than one. Las Vegas. Yeah, they, of they, there they is. They hop around. There's, yeah. you know, I think, uh, some on the East Coast... Uh-huh. Uh, some out here on the west coast, but the big one every year is the first week of August mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. That
1: sounds awesome.
0: So yeah, it, it was pretty cool. I was there for the 50th anniversary, and oh, you know nice. Bob Picardo, who uh-huh. was on the Planetary Society board, Yes, was, is. Yeah, was a Star Trek actor, played uh-huh. the, uh, the doctor on Star Trek Voyager, oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. Uh, and there was also a planetary society booth there and that 's yeah. cool yeah i didn 't even
1: mention that 's a fantastic like star trek slash planetary society um like overlap there so mm-hmm. Rob Picardo has done like a number of different, you know, like videos for the Planetary Society and he does all these kind of like goofy videos. He has a monthly like blog newsletter that goes out to Planetary Society members. Mm-hmm. So
0: they're usually really funny too. They are very funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh uh-huh. He's a he's a comedian for sure. He's
1: fantastic. And what I love about Star Trek is it seems like so many of the actors are also really passionate about space, you know, and that doesn't necessarily need to be true right you you don't necessarily as an actor need to love the subject that you're acting in i mean that's why it's acting right but it's really nice to see when people are like super keen about the subject and all of that so
0: Well, before we go, I have two last questions for you, Harriet. Bring it. Okay. First of all, where can people find you on social media if they want to follow what you're doing and if you're giving another Astro on Tap or some other outreach event, maybe with the Planetary Society, how can people contact you?
1: Sure. So you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Harriet underscore Brettel. So if you are... Uh, interested in learning about cool space facts and just generally hearing from someone who gets very excited about space exploration, then that's the place to go.
0: Excellent. (laughs) And finally, a lot of my science fiction that I consume is of course Star Trek. There's so much to go through Mm -hmm. um, and by the time I'm done watching everything I've forgotten what happened at the beginning, so I need to go back and rewatch it. Um, so, you know, I probably don't read or watch or consume science fiction that's not Star Trek as much as I really should. Uh-huh. And so, if you were to give me one recommendation for a science fiction, either TV show or movie or book that I just absolutely need to read, uh-huh. what would it be?
1: Okay, can I give you. One TV show and one book. Okay. Okay, because they're different. Okay, first, so my, my favorite book of all time, not just sci fi, of everything, is Contact. By Carl Sagan. Okay, I have read that. You have read that one. Okay,
0: my my old office mate gave it to me uh, as a birthday present, which I which I cherished, and I I, I've read it and I loved it. It was the best book that I read that year for sure. Okay,
1: fantastic. So, if any of your listeners have not yet read *Contact* by Carl Sagan, it's an absolutely phenomenal story. So, it tells the this is the first contact between humanity and an extraterrestrial civilization I guess you could say we get a message from the cosmos and have to figure out what it means and what we should do with it and it's fantastic on so many levels because it's really really well thought through it feels very realistic Sagan thinks about a lot of the implications to society and religion and policy and government and how all these things would change if we got this kind of message from outer space which is really cool. Okay, so that's my book recommendation, All but right. you've already read it, so that's cool. Uh, TV show is, I've recently got hooked on The Expanse.
0: Okay, I've heard of that, but I haven't watched it
1: Okay, yet. so you have to watch it because season three has just dropped, and I'm like holding off, <laughs> waiting to still, until I can like binge the whole thing at some point, but it's a really cool show. It's based in, I think it's like, you know, 200 years in the future, kind of generic 23rd century, and humanity is now a multi-planetary species. We live on the Earth, Mars, and in the asteroid belt. So society is kind of broken up into these three distinct groups, okay? People who live on the Earth, uh, well, they're exactly like us, right? And then you've also got the Martians who have to live like in the, these like enclosed towns or cities right because there's no like atmosphere that they can live in and then the asteroid belt is even further out and there essentially it's like a, ma- a mining colony mm. you know they're using the asteroids to get water and minerals that are brought back to the earth and mars um, and the people who have been living in the asteroid belt for generations are slightly taller than normal people
0: because but, there's lower gravity because
1: there's lower gravity exactly and it's a really cool show because they think about all these really subtle differences of okay what would people look like if they lived in like microgravity for like generations how would how would people be different and it's kind of like a political drama almost cuz you have this tension between earth mars and the asteroid belt who want to be kind of independent from the earth and mars and The action centers around this one spaceship called I think it's the Rossinante. Yeah, I think I've got that right. And it's just really, really well thought out. The storylines are super interesting and exciting. The science has been really thought through as well. You know, like I haven't been able to find any plot holes, you know, where you're like, oh, why did they forget about gravity here? Like they've (laughs) clearly thought it through, which is really cool, so... I'd recommend that.
0: Excellent. Mm -hmm. You know what? I'm going to go watch The Expanse. And after I'm caught up, Uh maybe we can have a special The Science of the Expanse podcast.
1: That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, we should do that.
0: Okay. Okay. (laughs) Good. Well, we'll bring you back for that. Thanks for joining us, uh, Harriet.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been super fun.
0: Yeah. That concludes episode 37 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Harriet Brettel about whether or not science fiction can predict the future, and that you're eager to join the Planetary Society and become a part of humanity's journey to the stars. Joining the Planetary Society is a wonderful way to get engaged in space exploration, no matter your background. As a matter of fact, I'm currently writing an article about the origin of life for the Planetary Society's quarterly magazine, The Planetary Report. So that's just an extra incentive for you to join the likes of Carl Sagan, Bill Nye, and yes, Star Trek Voyager's very own Bob Picardo in this great endeavor. Together, we can change the world.